So I want to share a couple things with you this morning that uh, Pastor Tony will not. He's not here, right? So we can share whatever. Uh, So today we're going to talk about things that, uh, you know, are acceptable, right? Everybody likes to be accepted. And uh, culturally, we have some things that we do, and every other culture has things that they do. And so uh, Brazil, I've been to Brazil several times, you know, our church is is very active in Brazil, and so we went to Brazil one time, and uh, they have an animal there called a paca. Now, if you've ever been to Brazil, you probably are familiar with a paca, but the best way to explain it is that it is uh, basically a giant neutral rat. I mean, it's, it's big, and uh, so the first time that I saw it, it was actually hanging in a convenience store. Let's just say that for lack of a word. And uh, it was, of course, not alive. And uh, so we went to this village, and so it was, it's a big thing to eat pocket in Brazil. And so they had decided that uh, in celebration of the new well that uh, you, that we uh, contributed to and we dug and had put in in uh, their village, that they were going to celebrate by cooking paca. Well, <clears throat> I'm from Mississippi, Okay. And I, we don't eat rats around here, okay? And so I, d- I came up with this plan, all right? So if I can be the last one in line, maybe I'll be lucky enough that they'll run out of paca. That's a good plan. It's a great strategy. And so I get to the very back of the line, and unfortunately for me, as I get to the stove, there is one delicious piece of paca left for Matt to eat. And so I'm like, really, God, you couldn't have just, like, you know, made it disappear or something? And, and so I get the paca, and I put it on my plate, so we all go outside of the mud hut to sit down and eat. And as I sit down to eat, I look over at Pastor Tony, and what is he doing? He is popping a Pepto-Bismol t- tablet in his mouth. This is like one of the first few times I've been, so I'm thinking, okay, if you're not going to eat it, there's a problem here, okay? So we got to figure this out. And, uh, and so fortunately for us, uh, you know, I did partake of the paca. I didn't eat all of the paca because uh, he's not in the room today either. But there's a guy named Steve that goes. And Steve will eat anything, which is wonderful. You want Steve with you. And so we're, you know, raking it over on Steve's plate. And uh, Steve eats the rest of the paca. And so I avoided uh, the uh, stomach problems that would come with eating neutral rat. Disgusting, right? But it's a big thing for them. They set traps and, and everything. You know, we always have these, these cultural idioms that, that we do, and, you know, they're normal to us, so they're not funny to us. So if I were to share, you know, American culture idioms, you wouldn't, you know, you'd say, oh, well, that's normal. So let me share one more from Brazil. Uh, so there's also this thing in Brazil. I have no idea where this comes from. But they like to call you over with their lips. Now, if you've ever seen Pastor Tony try to do the bewitch thing with his lips, it's the funniest thing you'll ever see. And so they'll, they'll, I'm not going to do it because it's highly embarrassing, but they'll stick their lips out and then like move their lips, kind of, you know, kind of like, hey, come over here. So the first time we we saw this, Pastor Tony and I were standing, uh, and a group of people, and one of the men, Valmy, Brandon, Valmy did his lips out, and uh, he started motioning for us to come over. And I, I look over at Tony, I said, is he blowing kisses at us? And uh, he was like, I don't know what he's doing. 
And I said, well, I'm not going over there. And uh, he said, well, I'm not either. And so we found out later on that, hey, that's, you know, one of the things they do. Like, hey, come here for a second. And I said, well, I'm never doing that with my lips. That's, that's weird. Right? And so we, we have all these things that we do, and, and culture, culture does these things. And so, you know, even those things happen inside of the church. Uh, for the most part, uh, well, for every one of you, probably, you sat in the same place that you sat last week, right? Anybody want to be brave enough to say you sat somewhere different today? No? Oh, well, we got somebody sat somewhere different. It's not, we just, we're creatures of habit, right? So we do things, we get in these, uh, these modes to where we're comfortable, and so we have these cultural things that we do because we want to be accepted, Right, you look around the world today, and, and we live in a culture that thrives on acceptance. I mean, we could spend hours talking about this. You know, what the world will tell you today is that if you follow the masses and you agree with the majority, right, if you just do that and agree with the majority and what they believe, well, then your life will be smooth sailing, right? No hiccups. You just agree with whatever the cultural acceptance is. And, and, you know, for us, it's normal. As humans, we all want to be accepted, right? We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. But the question really is, at what cost will we strive for acceptance? You know, if you live with no convictions, if you have no absolutes in your life, well, then what will happen for you and for me is that we'll end up accomplishing nothing in our life. Because we'll do what everybody wants us to do, and we'll do what everybody accepts, and then, well, then from there, nothing will ever be accomplished because we'll be just like everybody else. But that's not how God created you, right? God didn't say, yeah, let's just get a few billion people and stick them on planet Earth and see what happens. No, the Bible says that you were intricately made, right? That God specifically made you for a purpose and even though there's billions of us on the globe, there's still a purpose for you and for me. And sometimes people, well, we just want to do what everybody likes, and, and we don't want to strive for that purpose. I was preaching one time. I was a guest speaker uh, at a youth event. This has been many, many years ago. Uh, and it was uh, up north, and so I, uh, north of Mississippi. So I went up uh, to the church, and I carried a friend with me. And... Um, uh, he was, uh, is Polynesian, uh, kind of like the rock, you know, Dwayne Johnson, Polynesian guy. And so, uh, so I took him uh, with me, and so we go up there, and uh, we're at the service. And so I preached out of Corinthians, and uh, there was a guy there that uh, was sat in the back. And so, you know, the service, we had the service, and, and God, God spoke that night. God moved that night. There were a few teenagers that got saved. Well, this guy came under great conviction, and this is one of the leaders of the church, and so he came under great conviction during the service, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't know about it until afterwards, and so uh, as the teenagers came down and the counselors went out with them to be counseled, he went to every one of the rooms that the teenagers were being counseled in and brought them back into the service and said, uh, no, we're not going to, nobody's making any decisions tonight, we're not doing that. And uh, so he, uh, after the service was over with, he came up to me and he said, you know, we need to talk. And so here, long story short, here's what happened. Is as the message was proclaimed and the scriptures were shared, he fell under conviction. And he said, you can't share that scripture in this church. I said, 
Why not? I mean, I didn't know those people. They didn't know me. It was just a God thing. Why not? Why can't I share that? Well, because I did that sin right there. And if you bring that sin up, well, then that's going to be a problem for me. And uh, I said, okay. Uh, And he said, and furthermore, you brought a Polynesian to our church. And I said, I don't even know what to say right now. And so me and, and Eli, we left, and, you know, we left the church, and, and I've never been back to that church. I'm never going back to that church. Uh, but even inside of the church, there's these things that people say, well, this is, this is sacred to me. It doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. And so today I want to challenge us to look back at a couple of things. There's, there's two people in Scripture's here, we're going to rewind a little bit. So Pastor Tony went uh, through the latter part of 21. So we're going to back up and look at a guy at the beginning of 21. And then we're going to go back to the end of 21 and touch the first part of 22. Uh, and see what God has in store for us this morning. So uh, pray with me as we get started here. And let's ask God to bless our time together. God, we bow before you this morning. And uh, Lord, God, I know that you created us. For a purpose, every person in this room, uh, God, you intend for them to live for you, that you intend to live through them, God, that you intend to, uh, through your Holy Spirit, God, empower them to accomplish things for your kingdom and for your glory. And God, so oftentimes in our life, we fall under the pressure of acceptance, and so often in our life, we fall under the Uh, the lie that when bad things happen and when we go through difficult times that we should just give up. Uh, But God, that's not how you created us. Lord, you created us with purpose. And so this morning, I pray that as we open your word and as we read your scripture, God, that you will supernaturally do what only you can do today. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would visit every heart in here, that your words would be proclaimed, God, that you would give us eyes to see, and uh, Lord, you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, again, page 1282 in your pew Bible. And so, as we saw last week, Paul is intent on going to where? He's intent on going to Jerusalem. And uh, Pastor Tony preached last week about uh, how there were some difficulties along the way, and certainly we'll see today. Uh, that he runs into some trouble in Jerusalem. And so Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. And so we're going to pick up here at the beginning part of chapter, or the middle of chapter 21. So as he is on his way uh, to Jerusalem, we see that Paul stops in Caesarea. And the Bible says that he stops to meet, in verse 8, with a man named Philip. Okay, in verse 8 it says, On the next day we departed and we came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. Now, Philip, it gives us a little information here. He had four daughters, and uh, there there were those who prophesied. So his daughters were uh, uh, older, apparently, and uh, they prophesied. Uh, And so here's Philip, known as the evangelist that welcomes Paul and his compadres into his house. Now, Luke, if you remember, is writing uh, the book of Acts, right? This is the second version of Luke's writings. Uh, We have Luke, and then we have Acts, and so Luke is writing, and so Luke is with Paul and a few others, and so Paul goes to the house of Philip. Now, it's interesting that we see this happen, because I I want us to think about for a few minutes, who is Philip? 
Okay, Philip uh, was not a Palestinian Jew, but he was of Jewish descent. And so, of course, we know that the gospel came originally to the Jews. And so, uh, Philip here is of Jewish descent, but Philip had lived in Gentile lands, and he had contracted or he had grown up in uh, Gentile habits and associations, okay? So Philip was, you know, in, in scriptural terms, we see the Jews and the Gentiles, right? We're Gentiles uh, if, unless you're of Jewish descent. And so Philip was a Jew, but he went out, as we'll see, and he shared the gospel with the Gentiles. Now we know that was the mission of Paul. That was the purpose of Paul, right, was to take the gospel beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. Now this is also the same Philip Uh, That was one of the deacons or servants that was chosen in Acts chapter 6. If you'll remember earlier in our study, uh, verse 5 in uh, in chapter 6, it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Okay, so Stephen, uh, you know, there were some, uh, the Hellenist Jews were complaining that the widows were not being uh, taken care of. And so uh, the apostles said, hey, look, if we spend our time uh, waiting tables and not preaching the gospel, well, you know, that's not what God created us for. And so uh, why don't we get some help with this? And so they brought in the seven guys, uh, you know, commonly uh, we refer to them as deacons or servants here. And so Philip was one of those. Okay, so Philip has invited Paul into his house with his buddies. You know, Luke and a few others are there. This is the same Philip that was a servant 20 years prior that was a deacon that was chosen. And it is also the same Philip that witnessed the murder of his friend Stephen, who we just read about. And he was murdered by none other than who? Paul, right? Look, look in uh, the beginning part of Acts Uh, chapter 8 and the end of Acts chapter 7. The Bible says that falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul or Paul approved of his execution. And there arose uh, on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Okay, Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul, ravaging the church, was entering into house after house, dragging men off and women and committing them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so now we see that the gospel leaves Jerusalem, okay, and it goes out into Gentile territory. Well, who was one of the first to do that? Well, look at verse 5 of chapter 8. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Okay, so we see this is who Philip is. Philip is this guy who uh, was serving the Lord behind the scenes. He was consistent. He was faithful. And when there was need for other people to help shore up the ministry of the church there at Jerusalem, well, guess who they, they chose, they nominated, or they asked to serve was Philip and Stephen and five other guys. And then Stephen was the first martyr, so we see Stephen was killed for his faith because the Jews didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, right? And so then Philip was there when Stephen was murdered. Now, imagine the awkwardness now of this situation. You see Philip in the midst of this persecution, seeing what Stephen did and, his, and possibly uh, likely in fear for his life, he fled, right? He, he scattered to Samaria. Now, he was hurt. I mean, his best friend was just killed, right? And he wasn't, 
you know, accidentally killed. He was intentionally. He was murdered for his faith. But what Philip did not do is Philip didn't allow this to define him. You see, every one of us experience things in life that hurt, that are bad. Some things are really bad, right? And we, 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 we encounter this and we endure this pain. And so the question is, what do we do? How do we get through that? Well, the first blank on your handout this morning says that what God has planned for you, what God has planned for you is always bigger than what someone does to you. You see, God has a plan for each and every person in this room. And every one of us have been hurt. We've been through difficult times. We've been offended. Somebody's done something maliciously towards us. And what happens oftentimes is we allow that to define the future course of our life. And we have to realize this morning that God does have a plan for everybody in this room and everyone on this globe. And what God has intended for us or what he has planned for us is much bigger than any circumstance that we may encounter. Listen, people are going to hurt your feelings. People are going to make you mad. People are going to offend you. They're going to do things that you don't like. That is the nature of humanity. I always heard if you find a perfect church, don't join it. Because if you do, you'll mess it up, right? That's just how that works. And so as a body of Christ, we all come together all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our brokenness, and together we form the body of Christ. And so, you know, if your arm is hurt, well then, you know, the body sends nutrients and, and you know, different things to help to heal that. And so what God has planned for Philip, as we'll see, is much bigger than what Paul did to Stephen. You see, now Philip is sitting across the table from Paul. The man that 20 years ago brutally murdered his friend. Now, I'm sure there's, there's no doubt there were some conversations beforehand about how this should all go down. I don't know if Philip was married at the time. I'm going to guess that he wasn't married uh, when he was chosen to be a deacon. I don't know that for sure. Uh, but I can imagine him and his wife had some conversations like, oh, they're not coming here, honey. And he says, well, now listen, Luke has sent word. He says Paul has changed. Uh, here's all the things that Paul has done. And, you know, the wife says, well, look, I, I mean, I, you know, you, I don't know him. We're, we can't just invite this guy into our house. After all, he did kill Stephen. Have you not forgotten that, Philip? But what Philip did is he received Paul for the sake of the gospel. You see, if the gospel is not foremost on your heart and mind, if that is not the intent and purpose of your life, well, then you're going to make some of the wrong decisions in life. Paul could have missed, Philip could have missed this opportunity to have a conversation together and to, uh, to glory in or to recount all of the things over the last 20 years that God had done. Imagine the conversations that they had. You see, Philip's flesh told him to reject Paul. Your flesh, my flesh, would tell us to reject Paul, Right? But the gospel told him otherwise. The gospel said, Philip, you're no different than Paul. Okay, maybe you've not murdered anyone, but you're a sinner just like he is. You see, there's level ground at the foot of the cross, right? Every one of us are sinners. Every one of us have fallen. We've offended someone. I may have made you mad before. You may have made me mad before. We all do that to each other. That's just, that's just how that works. We're just a group of sinners that realize that we're in desperate need of a Savior. And so were Philip and Paul. You see, 
Philip could have easily played the victim here. Um, He just murdered my friend. God, why didn't you stop that from happening? And so Philip could have meandered off into his life in a life of mediocrity, which is where most people live, because something was done that offended him, something was done that was against him. I'm not ta- I mean, it was a terrible thing that Stephen was martyred. I mean, I'm not taken away from that. But if we allow these moments in our life to take away from what God intends for us, we'll never reach our full potential. I think it's interesting for Philip that, you see, Philip didn't take, he didn't take the route of the victim. He didn't play the victim card. Now, as we talk about cultural customs today, our, cultural, our culture is riddled with this epidemic. Wouldn't you agree with that? Everybody's a victim. Nobody's done anything wrong. We don't want to accept the reality of our sin. We've all had terrible things happen, and certainly some much worse than others, but it doesn't change the fact that God is still in absolute control, right? And, and so what Philip had a choice to do, what you and I have a choice to do, when bad things happen to us, is we can do one of two things. We can either get better or we can get bitter. We can get better or we can get bitter. What, what unfortunately the world tells you to do is to get even, right? Get bitter and get even. Somebody does something wrong to you, someone offends you, someone does something that you don't like, well, then you should get bitter about it and you should harbor that. That's what the world says. But Philip didn't choose that route. Philip didn't take the victim route. Philip chose to get better. See, it was a choice for Philip. It is a choice for you and for me and how we look at how the things that life throws at us. Philip chose to receive Paul based on the conviction and the proof that Paul had surrendered to Jesus. And so he accepted him. You see, in spite of what Paul did to Stephen, Philip didn't allow that to stop him from becoming what God had intended for him to become. Did you notice how Philip was referenced in verse 8 and 9? Philip who? Philip the evangelist. Philip was known for what he was doing for the kingdom. Now, when we meet Philip in Acts chapter 6, Philip is not known as the evangelist. It's just Philip, right? As I thought about that this week, I thought, well, if we were to, you know, have an opportunity to pull everybody's name up and, you know, splash it on the screen, and then we would use a title to define you and me and all of us in the room, what would that be? What what would that title be? Philip the evangelist. Would it be something, would we, would we be known for something that had gospel implications? Would we be known for something that uh, indicated that we were followers of Jesus? Because he, here's what's going to happen. Years from now, hopefully tomorrow, maybe even today, but likely years from now, the world's going to end, right? The lights are going to be turned out. We'll breathe our last breath and we'll stand before God. And everything that we've done, good, bad, and indifferent, is going to be right there before us. And as we stand before God on that day, we're going to be known for the things that we did on earth, right? The things that we accomplished. The only thing that will matter in that moment is not your career or mine. The only thing that will not matter in that moment is my checking account balance or yours. The only thing that will matter in that moment is what did I do with Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? 
right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. That is the only way that you and I will ever have an opportunity to have eternal life is through Jesus. And so as we stand before God, what will we be defined by? Will it be a a catastrophe that happened in your life? Will it be something someone did that offended you? You see, it's not what happens to us that determines our fate. It is how we respond to what happens to us. It is not what happens. It is how you and I choose to respond because what that will do is it will define that moment. I mean, in the simplest of terms, think about children, okay? We have two children. We've been involved in foster care, so we've had several children through our house. And what happens with a two or three or four-year-old when they fall down? What happens? It is the end of the world for them, right? I mean, they lose their mind when they just slip and fall. But how you respond, if you've ever been around a three-year-old that's fallen, you know this. It is how you respond that really determines the outcome, right? If you're like, oh, my gosh, oh, my, you know, you just run over and pick them up and just, are you okay? Well, then they're not going to be okay. That's just how that works. Now, I was raised in the country, and, you know, if, if you got a cut or whatever, you just put a little dirt in it, and you just move on. That's just how that works. And so when our kids were young and, uh, you know, if they would fall, we'd say, okay, wait a minute, let's see what happens here. Let's see what happens. And if they didn't, you know, if one of their limbs wasn't dangling, we would just kind of back up and let it ride, okay? You know, uh, you know I'd look over at Melanie, hey, you think they're going to live? I, I think they are. And so then we just let them keep going. It's how we respond to that. It's the same thing in your life. Look, look, the Bible says in John 10, 10, the enemy comes, the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. His, his intention for you, the devil's intention for you, his purpose for you, is to mess up, to mess things up, to fail, and ultimately to kill you. That is his plan for you. And so when bad things happen in your life, whether he was involved in them or not, when the enemy tries to distract you and derail you, how you respond to that is going to determine the future of that, of that outcome, right? So if the enemy looks at it and he tries to trip you up and you're like, oh, I'm good, I'm good, God's got this, he's going to say, well, that didn't work. Right, our response to it is really the determining factor. Philip was the deacon in Acts 6. Now he's the evangelist in Acts 21. He's been in Caesarea for over 20 years. He's married. He has four kids. I would say Philip moved on. Wouldn't you say? So now we see Philip has this encounter with Paul, and then Paul and his buddies, they move forward. They're continuing their march to Jerusalem, 70 miles away. So he's going to Jerusalem. When he gets into Jerusalem, we'll pick up here in a second in the Scripture, but when he gets to Jerusalem, he goes to meet with James, the leader of the church there, which is Jesus' half-brother. And uh, he meets with some of the leaders of the church there in Jerusalem. And, and so this is not the first time that they've met together. Again, if you've been a part of the study, all of this weaves together. In Acts chapter 15, Paul goes to Jerusalem, right? You remember this? Or he goes to meet with the James. And when they meet together, they conclude in Acts chapter 15 that the requirements to follow Jesus had nothing to do with the requirements to be a Jew. Remember that? 
Remember the Jews said, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. Awkward conversation, right? And so they said, well, hang on a second. Do the Gentiles have to do that? Because that's how the Jews are known uh, as their nationality and, and, and their, their separation, their difference. And so do the Gentiles have to do that? And so they all got together and said, okay, what is the requirement to follow Jesus? Jerusalem Council, okay? What, what is the requirement to follow Jesus? And they decided that the requirement to follow Jesus was what? The finished work of Jesus. Like, if you want to follow Jesus, then you need to depend on the work of Jesus, not on anything that you do, outwardly or whatever it may be. And so they decided that, hey, this is what, this is what it means. So look here in Acts chapter, or I'll, it'll come on the screen, Acts 15. It says, some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to what? According to the custom of Moses. This will come up later. You cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So Barnabas and Paul are out preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and they have this huge debate about whether or not it is required to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. Okay, so they go to Jerusalem, and look in verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, this is their conclusion, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And they said, don't do this. They said, abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep the, yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. They said, no, you don't, there's no requirements. You want to follow Jesus? He has completed the work necessary for you to do that. Okay? So, so this is the message that Paul has been proclaiming to all of the Gentile world. Remember, they agreed on this, right? Acts chapter 15. And so now Paul and his buddies make the 70-mile trek. They get to Jerusalem, and they run into James, okay? They meet with James. Paul had been declaring that all that Jesus had done and that salvation for anyone who wanted to believe, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. Anybody, anybody can be saved. Which means today, anybody can be saved. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you were born, regardless of how bad you think you are, regardless of how far from God you think you may be, anyone can be saved. That is great news, right? That all of the terrible things that I've done and all the bad things that you've done that you don't want anyone to know, God knows that. And in spite of all those things, God still loves us. That's why the gospel is called good news. So Paul had been declaring this to everyone, anyone who would listen. Paul never, you know, as Pastor Tony and I have been preaching through Acts, we've talked about that Paul was constantly, constantly on mission for the gospel. A few weeks ago, Pastor Tony mentioned how little sleep Paul had. <coughs> now we get to the problem. We almost had a problem with Philip, right? What are we going to do? Are we going to meet with Paul? <clears throat> And then we see here that the problem that we run into is that the Gentiles have been hearing the message that Jesus saves and that only faith in Jesus and faith alone in Jesus is necessary for salvation. And so lots of people said, I want to follow that Jesus. Lots of people. The Gentiles were rapidly growing in number. And the Jews took notice. You see, after all, the Jews now, remember, they're God's chosen people. And they had to be circumcised in order to be 
a follower, right, according to their custom. So why in the world wouldn't the Gentiles have to do that? Well, that's not fair. As I thought about this, I thought about our culture. Have you ever been to the DMV? Yeah, you've been there before? It's a wonderful place. And uh, they're very efficient there, right? I thought about, I had to go to the DMV uh, a little while back to get my license renewed, which I strongly suggest against. Uh, but I had to, right? See, it's, where, where else can you do that? So I go to the DMV, and I got there early. They're, they open at 8, so I got there early, and uh, so did everybody else. And so there's literally like 100 people in line to get a ticket at like 750. What are these people doing? And so I get in line, and the line goes down, and then it comes back up, and then, and then it went out of the building, and so I'm outside of the building uh, in line waiting to get a ticket so that I can be called up, of course. And so um, other people start driving up, and so I'm just sitting back watching. You know, I did the math. I'm not going to be up there anytime soon, okay? So if two or three people get in front of me, it's, I'm going to be all right. So I'm in line, waiting in line. Well, other people start driving up. Well, they don't realize that we're in line as well. And so they start trying to go in the door to the DMV. Well, that didn't go very well. If you've been waiting for a long time to, you know, to get in line and you've done the math, you realize you're going to be there a while. And apparently their seconds were a little more precious than our seconds were. And so there was some discussion about who should be in line and where the line should be. And so they began, then we, thankfully, uh, some of the people in our line decided to be line monitors. And so they decided that they would instruct people where they should go and get in line. You've been there before. I mean, DMV, Disney World, you know, pick it. If you've been in a line, you've run into that before, right? People want to get in front, they want to bother. And so you've got these people that tell you really quick, now wait a minute, if I'm going to have to wait out here for an hour and a half, so are you. We all, we all have that inside of us. I don't know what it is, but we all inherently have this, you know, we have this we put in our time mentality. You know, I have to wait, you got to wait. And so that was the same thing with the Jews. They said, now wait a minute, hang on, time out. When Abraham shows back up to his pals and said, hey, I've got a word from God, and God said that he's changing my name, and everyone's going to be circumcised, it was kind of like, are you sure that's what he said, right? And so this, this Jew, the Jews, they had all been through that, okay? And so now, all of a sudden, they say, well, Gentiles, not requirement for salvation. And so now there's this that's not fair kind of thing going on. And so here is Paul and James, again, Jesus' half-brother, some of the leaders of the church, they're meeting again. And Paul brings them money from the surrounding churches uh, that he had been preaching at and as a gift of gratitude for being the mother church, if you will. And so we pick up in verse 17 of chapter 21, again, page 1282. Uh, when we had come to Jerusalem, this is Luke talking, the brothers received us gladly. So, so far, so good, right? On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So there's a lot of people there. After greeting them, Paul related to them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, which I'm sure took a long time because 
Paul, this is after the third missionary journey. Uh, all of the epistles, uh, most of the epistles to this point have been written. Uh, so, you know, the church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, all the places that Paul had been, even Romans, uh, Corinthians, we see many things that have already been uh, written by Paul here. And when they heard it, they glorified God. So the church at Jerusalem says, well, praise the Lord. Amen. That's exciting. And they said, you see, brother, how many thousands are also or are among the Jews uh, of those who have believed. So they said, hey, guess what? Not only has God been working in the Gentiles, God's been working in the Jews. There's thousands that have been saved here as well. And says they are all uh, zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Remember the custom of Moses we said earlier? Telling them not to circumcise their children or, or walk according to our customs. So they said, uh, we hear what you're saying and God's doing the same things around here. Here's a question that we have, Paul. There's a lot of people that have been hearing that you are telling the Gentiles that they don't have to do this and they don't have to do that. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to walk according to our customs. And then they ask a question. What then is to be done? What are we, what are we going to do about it? They will certainly hear that you have come. It's Pentecost. The Jews are all trekking into Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of weeks. They know you're going to come. They know you're here, Paul. And when they see you, they've heard about you. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, Paul. They don't like what they heard. It's great that all these people have been saved. But, you know, you're not following the customs that we like to follow. I was a pastor in Appomattox, Virginia years ago. And uh, we had a citywide crusade. I may have shared this before. Uh, but we had a citywide crusade, and so before the crusade, I wanted to do something different. And so I, Melly and I worked together with the school, and we brought in uh, the power team, the muscle guys that break things and they share their testimony. And so, you know, we wanted to do something different, and uh, so we, we brought them in. So I went to the airport and picked a couple of the guys up, and uh, we bring them into Appomattox. Appomattox is a small town with two or 3,000 people that live there. And, uh, and so I had contacted all the churches around Appomattox and said, hey, here's what we're doing. Uh, we're going to have a crusade, and uh, they're going to share their testimony. They're going to break things. It's going to be awesome. We'd love for you to come and help us out. Well, one church decided they'd help us. Well, that's more than zero, right? And so one church decided to help. And so that night we had the crusade, and there were 1,000 people that showed up for that crusade. I mean, there was people everywhere. And so we have these, you know, this tremendous crowd, and there were probably close to 100 people that got saved that first night. It was unbelievable. And so we had this amazing response. I remember we took them down to the basement of the school, and uh, we, we had to mass counsel everybody, and then I would send uh, their cards to the churches that they were a member of. It was one of the questions on the card. So the next day, this is day number two, it was a three-day crusade, the next day I get calls from Several of these churches that I talked to, hey, Pastor Matt, listen, uh, well, we heard what happened last night, and we want to help. We want to get involved. And uh, I said, well, uh, that would be great. You're welcome to come, and we'll even reserve you a seat on the front row. But all the work's been done. We, we've already done all the work, and God's already shown up, and God's working. And so you hear about all these things that are happening, and, and God is doing the work, and God is saving people. 
And it was all of a sudden, hey, we want to get in on that. We want to, we want to participate on, we want to get in the tail end of what God's doing there. So they say, hey, the Gentiles there, man, they're getting saved. God's moving. Look at all the amazing things that are happening. And then the Jews say, look, that's great, but, you know, we're hearing that you're not, you're not doing the same customs that we're doing. You see, now we get to the crux of the matter. This isn't about circumcision. This is about Jewish customs. You see, in verse 21, they say, they have been told about you. Verse 22, they will hear that you have come. Here's my question when I read that. Why are you talking about Paul in church? Why is Paul the topic of conversation in the temple? I mean, look at all of the things that God has done and how he's rescued you from the burden of the law, Mr. Pharisee, Mr. Sadducee. All of the 600 plus laws that you feel like you have to keep in order to please God. Jesus came and he abolished all of that because he died on the cross to be the sacrifice for your sin, Mr. Jew. And so why are you in the temple talking about anything besides the supremacy and the amazing work of what Jesus has done? Right? I mean, do you not see that? How many churches today are giving great talks on how to be the best version of you or how to raise your kids or all these how-to sermons when what they ought to be talking about is the supremacy of King Jesus, right? Listen, the bigger God is in your life, the smaller things are that happen to you. And when we see Jesus for who he is and our life declares Jesus for who he really is, people naturally will be drawn to that. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, people will be drawn unto me. That's the gospel. And so Paul says, hey, look, God's doing amazing things in the Gentile world. And apparently, the Jews in Jerusalem are sitting around, and instead of declaring what Jesus has done, they're talking about Paul. They're talking about Paul. You see, we have, at this church, we, we have a gospel focus. And you leave here and hopefully you'll go to a small group this morning. And you leave your small group and at some point this week you'll meet with your D group. And you'll talk about the scripture and you'll share with what Jesus has done. And the point of your conversations will be about Jesus and about what Jesus did. Not what I've accomplished or not what you've accomplished but what Jesus has accomplished. Amen? Right? That's what, that's what people are drawn to. And they say, listen, Paul. We're worried about this. You're not following our traditions. Now, I know that I'm in the middle of a Baptist church, and tradition is our middle name, right? Well, we've always done it that way before. I mean, we're in the middle of construction right now, and everybody's displaced, and, you know, our carpet's messed up, and our rooms are messed up, and I understand we're creatures of habit. You see, I tricked you earlier and asked if you changed seats, and only one person said no, right? Traditions. Here's some common traditions in our Baptist churches today. Number one, worship style. Well, that'll hit a nerve, won't it? Oh, we're not singing enough hymns. Oh, we're singing too many praise songs. Oh, we're singing too many hymn songs. Right? People complain about that. Chris, can I get an amen? Right? How about Bible translations? Well, listen now, you, you come in here with anything other than a King James or English Standard or NIV, I can't believe you. Everybody's got their preference. 
would you rather someone read the NIV version or no version at all? Right? Is anyone in here uh, versed in 1611 King James English? No, I'll answer for you. Right? Right? You see what I'm saying? Bible translations. I, I mean, I went to a church one time that if you brought anything other than the King James Version, you weren't allowed to come in. That's the gospel, right? How about dress code? Same church. We had a, God was saving a bunch of students, and uh, we had some students that, God forbid, were wearing shorts to church. <gasps> what are we going to do about that? And I said, well, I'd rather them be at church in shorts than at home in jeans. I preached at a church in northern Virginia one time, and uh, I showed up. I was the guest speaker, and uh, they came to me, and they said, hey, listen, uh, we printed the bulletin out, and in the bulletin there's a part of the service that, uh, you know, I, I can't even remember what it was, that, that you know, you're going to have to do. And uh, I said, I, I'm not doing that. And uh, he said, uh, no, no, we put it in the bulletin. You have to do it. And uh, I said, no, I don't have to do it. And I'm, not, I'm here to preach today. I'm, I'm, I, that's what I'm here for today. And he said, but it's in the bulletin. What are we going to do? And I said, we're going to skip that part. That's what we're going to do. We're going to skip it. Right? We have these traditions that, that we follow and these customs, and they become huge. Listen, churches split over this. It's very, very common, unfortunately, for churches to have traditions that exist and split over these issues and these disagreements that take up. But listen, here's the deal. All these disagreements, most of the time, these disagreements have everything to do with the practice of their faith and rarely, if ever, with doctrine. Rarely. And so here's Paul saying, we're arguing over practice here. A simple way to resolve this issue, a simple way in our churches today, uh, hopefully not, but possibly maybe you've complained about things that happen in the church. Okay, maybe it happens. And you say, well, well we've never done it that way before. I don't like the way we're doing this, or I don't like the way we're doing that. Well, I'm going to make it easy for all of us this morning. There's two questions you can ask that will determine whether or not you should complain about it, okay? Two questions. Well, they're going to be on your handout here. The first question is this. Is does your tradition magnify God or man? Right? Is this a benefit for you or is this a benefit for the kingdom? Right? We say, oh, well, this is the way I want it. Well, this is, well does it magnify God if, you, if we do it that way? If you do it that way, is this going to bring honor to God? Will people follow Jesus more closely? Will people see more of Jesus if we do that, right? It, what, is your tradition or your preference, does it bring glory to God? If it does, I'm in, right? I'm in. Number two, does your tradition have any gospel foundations? If it's, you've always done it that way before, well, that's not a gospel foundation. If, well, I like it that way, that's not a gospel foundation, right? Remember what John said, I must decrease, he must increase, that this is not about me and it's not about you, it's about him. And yet in the temple, all they're doing is talking about Paul instead of talking about what Jesus did. 
You see, Jesus, he talked about this. In in, uh, Matthew chapter 15, he said, The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and he said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus said, What's more important here? What you want to do or what God says? Matthew 15, uh, verse 8, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Does your tradition magnify God or man? Does your tradition have gospel foundations? You see, for us, when our way of life supersedes God's way of life, we are destined for failure. When our way of life supersedes God's way of life, we are destined for failure. Look, God has to be who we want to please. God has to be who we aim to follow. God has to be who we aim to proclaim. He says, hey, they were zealous for the law. The Jews became very defensive about this and about their way of life that they created. And so this is what they decided that they would do. We pick up in verse 23. He says, do therefore, James tells Paul, do what we tell you. We've got four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself will also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Okay, so they decided that Paul, in an act of Jewish solidarity, should take part in this Nazarite vow by joining in the purification. Okay, that's what happened. It's Pentecost, there's quite a few number of Jews in town. Now, for you and for me, we recognize and acknowledge Pentecost as uh, from Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit of God was poured out upon His people. Uh, The Jews celebrated Pentecost, known uh, to them as the Feast of Weeks, and it was a commemoration of the Ten Commandments given by Moses on Mount Sinai. So they were celebrating the law. And in preparation for this feast, uh, some people would uh, commit to vows, and so there was a few in the middle of this Nazarite vow, which typically lasted 30 days, And now James and the elders wanted Paul to participate in the purification part, which sometimes if you were in the the, uh, vicinity of Gentiles for cleanliness purposes, they would participate in a seven-day purification. So here's this Nazarite vow going on. Anybody ever done a Nazarite vow? No? Nobody raising their hands? Who even knows what that is, right? Right? Well, the reason that you and I aren't very familiar with that is because it is an Old Testament practice. It, this vow is good. It is for those who voluntarily dedicated themselves to God. It's voluntary. It can be done by a man or a woman. It's got a specific time frame and requirements and restrictions. And at the end, it concluded by offering a sacrifice 
for the purification or the cleansing of their sins. Numbers chapter 6 talks about it. The priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. So it sounds fantastic, right? I mean, how could holy dedicating yourself to God be wrong? It, it sounds amazing. Well, here's why it was wrong. It was wrong because it neglected the finished work of Jesus. If you've been in any part of our Hebrew study, we spent 40-plus weeks in Hebrews talking about what? That Jesus is better, right? And that what Jesus did on the cross completely took care of the requirements of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And in Hebrews chapter 9, we study that indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, right? Under the law, there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Okay, in Hebrews 9, and so then we get to Hebrews 10, and it says, and, that, and by that will we have been sanctified through what? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How many times? Once for all. Once for all. And the priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all those who are being sanctified. By which we all respond, Amen. Right? None of you brought an animal sacrifice to church this morning. Why did you not do that? Because it is not required. Because Jesus accomplished that for you and for me. You see, because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, there is, there was no longer a need for a sacrifice to purify from our sins. Jesus accomplished that. James and the elders thought that if Paul would participate in their customs, then, well, the Jews would accept him. Newsflash, Jews, this was never the point, right? The goal was never for the Jews to follow Paul. The goal was always for the Jews to what? To follow Jesus. Amen? Right? The goal for us, the goal for this church is not for any of us to follow one person, but it's for us to follow Jesus, to declare who Jesus is. They were more interested in pleasing people than in pursuing after God. You see, there were no gospel foundations. On your handout, the next blank says, If pleasing people is more important than pleasing God, then you will live a life of compromise. Remember, a life that doesn't accomplish anything. That's a life that is compromised. You see, James allowed the Jewish customs to become more important than the gospel. So how did all this play out then? Well, we pick up in verse 27. It says, when the, days, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, which, of course, is the temple. 
Moreover, he even brought the Greeks into the temple and has defiled his holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all of the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. And they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, which is the last time that Paul would ever be in the Jerusalem temple. And at once the gates were shut. Now, did Paul get to offer his sacrifice? No. When the seven days were almost complete. Right? And so as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. And he at once took soldiers and centurions and he ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was carried away by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So Paul, James wants him to, in an act of Jewish solidarity, participate in the Jewish customs. Gets almost to the end to where the sacrifice takes place and he doesn't because the mob attacks him and begins to hurl insults at him and beat him and try to kill him. And so the result was that Paul never finished the purification process. The Jews who had once called his family were now calling for his death. Remember Paul, as we'll see in the coming weeks, he stands before the crowd and says, Hey, I'm, I'm one of you. Gamaliel, he trained me. I was born in Tarsus. I'm a Jew by citizenship. Why are you doing this? You see, today we see on the one hand that Philip compromised for the sake of the gospel. He says, I, you know, I really don't care what's culturally acceptable if it's accepted by the gospel. And so for the sake of the gospel, Philip compromised to receive Paul. And then we see James. And James compromised for the sake of what? For the sake of tradition. So as I thought about that this morning, I asked myself the question, who am I? Who are you? You see, on the one hand, you have Philip. Here's Philip who's been through some tough things in his life. Think back to Acts chapter 10. You may not put these two together, but in Acts chapter 10, there's a man by the name of Cornelius. You remember we studied that? And in a vision, he's... Uh, he is to receive Jesus, remember, and God sends Peter to preach, to proclaim the gospel to Cornelius, who is in Caesarea. So Peter comes from out of town to Caesarea because God brings him there to share the gospel with Cornelius. Why is that important? Well, who else lives in Caesarea? Philip. Philip lives in Caesarea. Why did God not get Philip to go tell Cornelius about Jesus? Philip's had a tough go, right? Stephen was murdered. He, because of persecution, had to leave town and find another life in Samaria and Caesarea. He gets to Caesarea and God's working in Caesarea and yet God doesn't use Philip to tell Cornelius. But Cornelius wasn't bitter about this. Cornelius 
uh, or, or Philip wasn't bitter about this. Philip stayed in his lane. He said, God, I'm just going to be faithful to follow you. I'm going to be faithful to base my decisions and my life on the gospel. And 20 years later, the life story of Philip, what he is now known for, is not what he started doing, a deacon, but how God used him, an evangelist. You see, when we ask the question, am I Philip? Here's what Philip did. You see, the God inside of Philip? was bigger than the circumstances around him. So as we, we close today and we ask the question, who am I? Are you Philip? Is the God inside of you bigger than the circumstances that are around you? Or maybe you would say, well, I'm James. You see, James knew the right thing to do, and often he did. James didn't come to faith until later in life. He didn't become a believer until after Jesus resurrected. Remember, when Jesus resurrected, he said, tell James. But you see, when James was under pressure to please people, James caved. He allowed the voices around him to become louder than the Spirit of God inside of him. So, are you Philip? Is God bigger inside of you than your circumstances, or are you James? Are the influences around you bigger than the God inside of you? So the last blank on your handout is multiple choice. You can write in, I am Philip. I am James. And as we go to small group this morning, uh, there's some questions on the back that you're going to have an opportunity to discuss what that means. Why do you say you're Philip? Why do you say that you're James? And we can encourage and we can pray for each other about that because that's what the body does, right? I want to encourage you this morning that God created you for a purpose, that God has a plan for your life, and the circumstances of your life do not determine the outcome. God does. And you don't have to compromise your position. You don't have to give in to cultural norms to, to be accepted because through the gospel, you're already accepted. Jesus loves you absolutely just the way that you are. But as Max Lucado says, he refuses to leave you that way. His desire is that you would be just like Jesus. And he will continually, until the day that you and I breathe our last, continually pursue us, continually work inside of us and through us for his glory, if only we submit and surrender to that. So my prayer for you is that you would live a life that was uncompromised for the gospel. That you would stand in the midst of persecution. That I would stand in the days to come. And that we won't cave to what the cultural says is right. But that we'll stand wholeheartedly and we will be defined in the end by what Jesus has done through us. Not by what the world expects around us. Amen. Pray with me this morning. God, we, we come to you, Lord, and we confess to you that it is hard to do that sometimes. That in and of ourselves.